morning's reading is from Judges, chapter 6, verses 11 to 24. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our ancestors recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it. The Lord is peace. To this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizurites. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second reading is from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 8. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, in this sacred time and space, may you remain our focus. May your words be heard, and may you alone be glorified among us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we're at the end of our summer sermon series on some of the Hebrew names of God. And we've gone through a really interesting list. I hope, I hope you found it interesting. Uh, I found it quite fascinating. But this week, we uh, finish it up with a look at the name Jehovah or Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is peace. Now, it only appears once in the Bible in our reading from the book of Judges, uh, chapter 6, that was read this morning. And it's an odd reading, as is most of the book of Judges. If you've read through it, it's a violent and bloody and dark and obscure book with a lot of really weird things happening, including nails through heads and all, all manner of other gruesome things. But the, the, the story of the Judges falls in the sequence after the death of Moses, uh, Joshua succeeded him, began the reconquest of Canaan, uh, and when Joshua died, the, the conquest continued without central leadership often enough, and it was, it was only episodic, partial, never complete. And so the Israelites co-inhabited the land with its occup earlier occupants. And in that context... They were influenced by the people with whom they lived. And they began to worship other gods and, and lived lives in ways that did not glorify God and that God had asked them not to do, had told them not to do. And the inevitable consequences of these patterns of behaving and relating and communicating was that they became oppressed by the people and powers they were meant to overcome. And then in our book of Joshua, our judges, God would raise up a judge to lead the people, to, re to free them from the oppressors. But as always, the, the overcoming of the enemy was never complete, and the cycle repeated itself over and over again. And in the book of Judges, you have 12 judges mentioned, the two most famous of which are Samson, the supernaturally strong one, and Gideon, uh, the man we're looking at today. Uh, the story we look at is the commissioning of Gideon to his role as judge. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an odd story with a lot of complications, and we're going to have to skate through some of those complications. If you have questions, you can ask me later. I've had to eliminate a great deal to fit it into our time this morning. So the context is that Gideon is threshing grain in a wine press. That's, that's uh, for those of us who didn't live in the, the uh, second century BC in, in the Middle East, that may not mean a whole lot. But they were in hiding from the Midianites, their oppressors. They were in caves. They were in shelters. And a, a wine press was an enclosed space where you would tread out the, the grapes so that you would get the, the, the juice to create the wine. And whereas uh, threshing grain should be out in the open where the breeze can take away the chaff. So he was doing something that was really, really complicated, 
because he was hiding. He was hiding from the Midianites. So that's the context when this messenger from God, from from Yahweh, uh, comes to him and says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. O mighty man of valor. Is this sarcasm? Or is this something else? Well, because there's not a whole lot of history in the Bible of God being sarcastic, I'm going to go with something else. And that something else is that God sees us very differently than we see ourselves and others. God's, we, when, when we look at ourselves and when we look at others, we tend to identify ourselves and others based on our failure, our inadequacy, the very worst of our behavior and the very worst of other people's behavior, the limitations, the mistakes, the sins. When God looks at us, he sees that, but he also sees who we were created and intended to be. So when God looks at Gideon and says, you mighty man of valor, even though he's hiding in a cave someplace, he's seeing what Gideon was intended to be and at least partially would become in his ministry as a judge. Interestingly enough, Gideon ignores the mighty man of valor bit and he goes to the first part of the salutation. He says to the messenger, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hands of Midian. In my own life and in my caring relationships, this more than anything else is the instinctive response to difficult times in our lives. God has forsaken us. God has abandoned us. But I love how bluntly Gideon says it here. It turns out that he was mistaken, as are we all when we draw the same conclusion. But he certainly didn't hold back, did he? You can hear the doubt, the confusion, the anger, the resentment, the bitterness in his voice. I just love his honesty. Interestingly enough, God does not self-justify in response, or at least not at at the moment. Rather, God assures Gideon that through Gideon, he will deliver Israel from the Midianites. Gideon responds quite skeptically, how likely is that given how insignificant I am? And he's right. He was an insignificant man of an insignificant clan from a relatively insignificant tribe. And he was threshing wheat in a wine press. But God's respond to Gideon's doubt is, but I will be with you. That's the response. I will be with you. Now, if you were here three weeks ago, you might, have, might remember, you don't have to remember, but you might remember uh, the little Hebrew lesson that we did about the, the tenses in the Hebrew, the biblical Hebrew. There are two tenses in biblical Hebrew. There's the perfect, which includes all things completed in the past, and the imperfect, which con- includes things present and things in the future. This is a future tense. I will be with you. And here it's translated in the future, or sort of the imperfect tense, and it's translated in the future. But it could also be translated in the present tense. 
And changing the tense of this phrase changes the meaning a little bit, doesn't it? It creates a different tone at the very least. But I am with you. At the very least, there's a tone of correction to Gideon's earlier assumption that he and Israel had been abandoned by God. But I am with you. I've always been with you. It is you who, like the prodigal, and we all at times are the prodigal, it is you who have left me. Furthermore, my being with you is all that you need to accomplish whatever needs doing. In John chapter 15, Jesus reminded his disciples that apart from me, you can do nothing. Not the kind of phrase you'd read in the current self-help books or the power of positive thinking. At the other end of the spectrum is the Apostle Paul's ringing declaration, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So God tells Gideon, I am with you. I will be with you. That's all you need. In verse 17 of our text, Gideon asks for a sign. Apparently asking for signs was a thing for Gideon. You may recall that later on in the story, he asks for a series of signs based on fleeces and dew and things like that. Here, Gideon prepares a meal for his guest, a meal by the way that would take at least a couple hours, if not a half a day to prepare. So there was a lot of waiting around. The meal was consumed in a flash of fire and the messenger from God disappears. That was enough of a sign for Gideon to believe that he had been in an extended encounter with the messenger from God, the angel of God, or God, God's self. And he was terrified. He was convinced that his life was at risk. In verse 22, he cries out, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And then in, in brackets, and I'm toast. I'm done here. The Lord's response to Gideon and his palpable terror was, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. And in response to God's words of comfort and encouragement, Gideon built an altar or a memorial and called it Jehovah or Yahweh Shalom. So this is the immediate context for our name for God that he attributed to God. So let's devote the remainder of our time this morning to exploring some of the meaning of this name. First, the word Shalom. It's always translated as peace and it's a good translation as far as it goes. But in Hebrew, it means considerably more than that. Even in English, there are at least two meanings of the word peace. The first is cessation of conflict. When individuals or groups, tribes or nations are in conflict with one another, when that stops, we have peace. And that's what we declare euphorically. When a war ends, we've got peace. There's peace. Yay, peace. Another meaning in English is an inner tranquility. You know, a calmness, a stillness internally. Which, interestingly enough, can be seen as a cessation of inner conflict. But as a rule, we, when we don't have it, we look to external rather than internal causes. The Hebrew word, however, has even more than that. And so we've got to do a really quick Hebrew lesson again. Hebrew words are built on, on a three-consonant root word. And then other consonants and vowels are added or subtracted to create new or different words. 
But as a rule, all of them are connected to the original intent or meaning of the root to one degree or another. So the meaning of the three-letter root, three root shin, lam, and mem, from which we get shalom, has to do with well-being, prosperity, completeness, wholeness. And in the context of its use in the Bible, particularly in the book of Exodus, the restoration of those qualities and, and realities. One of the phrases you may have heard Tim use in his sermons in the past is the phrase, full flourishing. Full flourishing, that's what Shalom is getting at. In the context of our story, Gideon and the Israelites were incomplete. And they were far from flourishing. They were dominated by fear. Gideon and the rest of Israel were terrified of the Midianites. That's why they were in hiding. And Gideon was equally terrified of a death-dealing God. Fear is perhaps the most powerful force away from completeness and full flourishing for all of us. And when we are overcome by fear, it can elicit from us a number of responses or reactions. If our fear gets the better of us, we may fight, we may lash out in a terrified effort to preserve or protect ourselves from that which frightens us, from the threat. We may flee, we may run away or withdraw from the person or thing we fear. Or we may freeze. In the face of our fear, we may feel absolutely powerless and have no capacity to respond at all. In our story, Gideon was probably in the category of flight and freeze. Flight from the Midianites and freezing at the horrifying reality that he'd been face to face with the Almighty God. At this point, he's nowhere near fighting, let alone anywhere near completeness and full flourishing. It is into and against that fear and the incompleteness it creates that God speaks shalom to Gideon. And the declaration of shalom had such an impact on Gideon that he built an altar or a memorial to mark the life-changing significance of that moment. When you bring the two words together, they literally, they mean Yahweh, peace. There's no verb there. So it could mean God is peace, or God brings peace, God proclaims or declares peace, or God establishes or restores peace. Or it could mean all those things and more. You may recall from the sermon on Yahweh from three weeks ago that the name Yahweh means God is, not a being, but being. God is with or manifest to his people, to his followers, and God is for, God is actively on the side of those who follow him. So God is shalom. Wholeness and full flourishing are what God is. God brings shalom and God brings about shalom. God brings completeness and full flourishing back into being. So what does any of this mean for us today? What are the implications or the takeaways of this name Jehovah, Shalom? Created in the image of God, humans were at peace with God. We were at peace with our world, with one another, and with ourselves. But then we strayed. We always stray. 
And the story of the fall graphically portrays the breakdown of that shalom, that harmonious full flourishing in all the areas of our lives. And the subsequent story of God's dealings with humanity is the story of God bringing shalom back into our lives, our relationships, back into our world. Shalom is who God is and what God is about in our world. There was and is a plan to restore shalom. And the key to that plan is the cross. In his farewell address to the disciples, Jesus said in John chapter 14, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Notice the phrase, my peace, my shalom. Notice also that Jesus' shalom is there to do away with fear. What do you fear this morning? Does the global news fill you with dread and or anger? Do you find yourself furious with leaders and decision makers who seem to work deliberately against God's shalom rather than for it? And does that extend, anger extend to those who support those leaders? Do you find yourself at odds with other people in your life? Do those relationships elicit from you fear or anger or both? Do you find yourself at odds with yourself? Are you beset by internal dissatisfaction? Anxious about your own inadequacies? Often in inner turmoil. Jehovah Shalom proclaims his peace over all of those fears. Peace, be still, he says to us yet again. And in the face of the despair and hopelessness of our world, that proclamation of shalom bears within it the promise of freedom from fear and freedom from conflict on the way to wholeness and full flourishing, individually, as a community, and globally. There is a plan. And with the cross, that plan was set in motion. And that plan is nothing less than the triumph of God's shalom in all the world, culminating in Jesus' return to set all things right and make all things new. A hint at how this can happen is found in our reading from Philippians, where the Apostle Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Acknowledge your anxieties and fears, and rather than just stewing in them, as is our want often enough, bring them to God in prayer. And then, because our anxieties and fears will tell us that all is danger and hopelessness and despair, we must also engage in the spiritual discipline of praise and thanksgiving. And when we exercise these two disciplines of the prayer of, of petition and praise and thanksgiving, the peace of God, the shalom, the full flourishing of God, a shalom that is beyond human comprehension, will guard our hearts, the seat of our decision-making, and our minds, the, thought, the thoughts that we think. And our reading also included the kinds of thoughts that are promote shalom rather than detract from it. 
That is a key part of how we personally will begin to live into God's shalom for our lives. But how does that even work on a larger scale? Well, God's plan to bring about his shalom, his full flourishing to the whole world, has always been the same. One by one by one. As we, as we exercise the disciplines of prayer and thanksgiving in the face of our fears, as we invite the God of peace into more and more areas of our lives, as we become increasingly transformed so that our transformation influences others on their own journey of transformation, that journey from fear and conflict to love, peace, freedom, and power in the Holy Spirit. That's how. So this morning, hear the words of Jehovah Shalom. Hear them not just with your ears, but with all your being. As once again he proclaims over us in the face of our fears, do not be afraid. Peace. Peace. Shalom. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.